In this episode of Radio Free Humanity, we talk to Adam Plant, who is a student in New York City who works with Marxist Humanist Initiative researching authoritarianism and democracy. We chat with Adam about a paper he presented at last year's Historical Materialism Conference in New York, a paper entitled To Defend and Transcend Liberal Democracy. In the conversation, we chat about the need for socialists to fight to defend liberal democracy from the full-on assault of authoritarian threats like Trumpism. It is a wide-ranging conversation, moving from the critique of soft-on-Trump leftists to a conversation about the 2020 elections, to a theoretical discussion of the way in which socialists can both fight to, to defend and transcend liberal democracy. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And this is Andrew Kleinman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Adam Plant about defending and transcending liberal democracy. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few moments to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on February 12th, the day after the New Hampshire primaries, and we're going to be talking about the current state of the Democratic primaries and what this means for the fight against Trumpism. I'm suspecting we're going to hear a lot of celebrating uh, today and in days to come about Sanders' victory in New Hampshire and probably claims that um, this is further proof that Sanders is the, the strongest candidate to beat Donald Trump. But I suspect we should be taking those kind of claims with uh, some skepticism. For one, Sanders' victory in New Hampshire was a lot narrower this time around than it was a few years ago when he ran against uh, Clinton in New Hampshire. And it might reflect the fact that there are more candidates to choose from. But also, if you were to take um, the sort of two left economic populist candidates, Warren and Sanders, uh, take their votes on one hand and... All the everyone else who voted for, you know, Klobuchar, Biden, Buttigieg, um, the sort of more centrist candidates. On the other hand, it's clear that there were there are a lot more votes for the centrist candidates than for the you know, left populist candidates. My suspicion is that means that although someone like Sanders might do really well in the primaries because the sort of centrist vote is divided amongst lots of candidates, um, when it comes to the general election. I worry that there will not be the same enthusiasm for Sanders, and a lot of people will be scared of his candidacy or, and, and wish they had a, a different candidate to vote for. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the major point that it's very unsettled and the victory of Sanders was narrow, just like the, the victory uh, in Iowa of Buttigieg over Sanders a week before was same degree of narrowness. The one thing I would urge caution about is this idea that the primary voters are themselves in lanes, you know, the progressive lane versus the moderate lane, and are choosing candidates on the basis of that kind of ideological split. I mean, first of all, e even people who vote in primaries who are much more keyed into politics than the average person in the population, even they are not primarily ideological voters. They don't have the kind of political sophistication, as it were, to to, to think about the issues in, in those ways. Um, so I think that preferences cut across all kinds of possible divisions. And there's a lot of factors involved. And what makes it even more complicated this time, much more complicated this time, is it's just like what um, John Maynard Keynes called the, the beauty contest problem, and he applied it to the, the stock market. Like in the stock market, if you want to do well, you don't just pick a company that you think is going to thrive, okay? You pick a company that you think that other people think is going to thrive, because then you can resell the stock for more. Or a company that you think other people think that other people think, that other people think, you know? Uh, uh, 
uh, he says he, he, he knows of people who are able to take this, you know, five degrees of separation or, or whatever the term is. Okay, from everything I'm hearing on the news, a lot of that kind of stuff is going on in right. primary votes. So it's not even people voting on the basis of their own preferences. They're voting on what they think other people's preferences are and, and, and who's the most right. electable and, you know, who, who can d defeat Trump and, and all of this. I mean, I, I've heard some pretty funny things like young people in general, you know, are not kindly uh, disposed to Pete Buttigieg. But because he's young, a lot of older people think that young people are going to like him. So they, 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 they start to vote for Buttigieg. I mean, you know, so the, the whole thing is, is a complete mess. Uh, and the other thing is, if you, if you want to know who's going to like succeed and who's going to not succeed, you got to look at the state of uh, the campaign's finances, because <laughs> that matters. I mean, especially when you come up to something like Super Tuesday, where there's a lot of big states, you know, and they're all having primaries at once. They... Okay, point taken. Um, you know, one of the things that distinguishes Sanders more from the, his rivals is his fanatical base, a base which has even been compared to Trump's base in terms of their level of fanaticism. Uh, it still mystifies me, given the fact that, you know, Elizabeth Warren is basically an identical candidate. Uh, with just a few differences of you know labeling, she calls herself a capitalist. He calls himself a democratic socialist. But in general, you you look at all of these candidates, and really the, the ideological differences between them are really really minor. You, you know, you say that from the outside. I mean, you know, if you're talking about like you know a Methodist and a Presbyterian, they think they've got big differences, right? It's the same thing. I mean, I I couldn't tell them apart, right? From the from the outside, it's 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 like what are these people fighting about? But look. Even insiders are really uh, upset about this, uh, as well as people like myself. And it seems like a lot of the whole population is saying, you know, look, the thing that we have to do is get rid of Trump and everything else is peanuts compared to that. That's the one thing we have to deal with. And, you know, and they're talking about Medicare for all, Medicare for all who want Medicare, Medicare for, you know, really minor things when basically you got Mitch. Mitch McConnell in control of the Senate, you're not even going to have Obamacare. So I think I'm probably not alone in fearing that if Sanders wins the nomination, a lot of people will potentially not vote for Sanders and either abstain from voting or vote for Trump because they perceive him to be a greater threat, rather, whether or not that's you know realistic or not. Uh, and uh, that if Sanders loses the Democratic nomination, a lot of Sandernistas may sit out the election or vote for Trump or vote for, for a third party, like happened last time around, or throw the election for Trump. And there'll prob probably be lots of conspiracy theories circulating, uh, encouraged by Trump's propaganda machine to encourage Sandernistas not to back the uh, Democratic nominee. I, I, I agree with you. And uh, I mean, it's not Sanders doing, you know, that was like the big takeaway from his victory speech yesterday is, you know, he emphasized how important it was to get rid of Trump and that he would support the nominee, whoever it is, and the rest of them would do the same. So that's not the problem. The problem is Bernie Sanders followers. You wonder to what extent they're actually his followers or, you know, they've got their own agenda and he's the vehicle for their, their agenda in many cases. So, right, I mean, there there are just, there's a small group of people who their their, their main um, goal is to take over the Democratic Party, destroy the centrists, the moderate liberals, and, and you know, even people like, like Elizabeth Warren. And to them, that's more important than getting rid of Trump. Uh, and, you know, that's the people like Ted Raw who, who we've talked about. So, so Bernie Sanders for them is a vehicle. And and their aims and his don't mesh entirely. Uh, it's much like with the situation with Trump's base. Tr Trump is a vehicle for these people. It's not like actual cult hero worship. As much as anybody says that, I mean, if, if, if Trump wasn't, you know, ripping apart immigrant families and, and everything, if he was, wasn't giving these people what they want, they wouldn't, they wouldn't stick with him. It's, it's very transactional. And, and, and that's how I regard it with, with Sanders' uh, base as 
well. I mean, there's nothing that I, I think he can do about it. I mean, there's just a small group of people. And the problem is, although they're small, this matters. And it, it mattered in um, 2016, not with respect to Sanders so much, although probably uh, there were some Sanders people who sat out the election and so forth. But the, right, the vote received by Jill Stein in the three states that, uh, you know, flipped to Trump, Michigan, Wisconsin, and, and Pennsylvania, uh, the vote received by Jill Stein was bigger than Trump's margin of victory in each of those states. So there's sm- it's a small group of people, but 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 their their decisions do 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 matter a lot. Yeah. Another thing that has to be said with respect to the primaries is how just absolutely disappointed and feeling that shut out so much of the Democratic Party feels. And I'm referring to like people of color, especially like black, black and Latino. I mean, because there are no remaining candidates who are black or Latino. And and the only I mean, the only remaining person of color, I guess, is uh, Tulsi Gabbard. You know, you, you don't you don't have Cory Booker. You don't have Kamala Harris. You don't have Julian Castro. Uh, and then you get two extremely white states, Iowa and New Hampshire. They have basically put the candidacy of Joe Biden, in, in, put it in serious danger. And he, he's been very popular among black voters, in particular uh, older black voters. And at the end of this month, there's going to be a primary in uh, South Carolina, heavily black Democratic uh, primary vote expected to go well for Biden if he's able to last that long. But that's, I mean, that's the problem. By the time these these folks get a chance to cast a ballot, so much is already water under the bridge. So people of color are like 40% of the Democratic Party vote. And, you know, a lot of them are just feeling shafted for very good reasons. And, you know, so now you've even got like, you know, I'm I'm hearing talk of it. I don't know how much of this is real, but you're hearing, you know, uh, black people considering shifting their, their their preference from Biden to Mike Bloomberg, you know, who who's a Republican, you know, was, was, in New York, he was our, our mayor, Republican mayor, and he aggressively enforced these stop and frisk policies. And he says now that it was wrong, you know, but, you know, it's not like they don't know that he did this. They don't know that he's bad news. But for, for black people in this country, it's not like a matter of, oh, you know, here's what we want. Let me vote my values and my aspirations, it's like our, our lives are on the line. And if it's a choice between Donald Trump winning and somebody like Bloomberg being able to win, right, versus, I don't know, Bernie Sanders being able to lose or whatever, we don't want Bernie Sanders if he loses. We'll have to go for Bloomberg. And, and I mean, this I find very, very disturbing that people whose lives are really on the line and for whom these decisions really matter don't even have equal voice much less preferential voice t- determining what, what what happens. So, I mean, I you know, I, I, th- I think people who are really affected, you should listen to what they have to say. And it's it's just, you know, it's not about you. It, it, it's it's about uh, their futures as well. But uh, it's not the way these things operate, unfortunately. And that is it for our current events section today. Next up, our interview with Adam Plant. Okay, so Adam, last year, the Marxist Humanist Initiative uh, held a panel at a conference in New York City uh, sponsored by the journals Historical Materialism and Jacobin, and you gave a presentation. Uh, and I was struck by the way you began your presentation. You said that the election of Donald Trump and the rise of other authoritarian strongmen around the world is a dire threat, not just to the liberal democratic order, but also to socialist values. And I was struck by this because because in one sense, it's like very obvious. Uh, it's always been obvious that authoritarianism is a dire threat to socialist values. After all, the socialist movement arose in opposition to monarchies and autocratic states. Uh, and the socialist movement has for a very, very long time fought hard for the expansion of freedoms and democratic rights. So what I was struck by is why you felt the need to emphasize something so obvious. Why did you find it necessary to emphasize the threat of authoritarianism to socialist values specifically. Uh, really, really it, it struck me that this didn't appear obvious to so many people, especially when it came to the question of Trump. 
there were a lot of people who saw Trump, you know, not necessarily as a friend, but as somebody who could come in and shake things up in America and create space for socialism, rather than doing the standard authoritarian uh, spiel of rolling back protections and persecuting uh, you know, political opposition. So it, it just really struck me that people people saw that they could make common cause with Trump or even use the rise of authoritarianism to further as a socialist project, rather than authoritarianism being completely anathema to that project. Give us an example. Where did you see this happening? Well, one of the striking ones was the article that Slavoj Žižek wrote, I believe, for The Guardian, entitled, Don't Believe the Liberals. There's no real choice between Le Pen and Macron. That was in 2017. Uh, however, you know, this this is an attitude. Uh, MHI has pointed out a lot of stuff with Chris Catrone, who, you know, at first he said, why not Trump? And then after he was called out on that, he still, he still wrote an article that was mostly about anti-Trumpism and how that's a distraction from socialism and the socialist project. But this, this underlying idea really, really struck me that there's no real choice between neoliberalism or the liberal democratic order and authoritarianism. And I, I really started looking at that, especially around this time uh, before the historical materialism conference, I had been reading Lenin's State and Revolution. And it, it just really struck me that after 90 or so pages of critiquing the liberal democratic order, he said in, in something I quoted in that piece, that liberal democracy is of enormous importance to the working class and the struggle for socialism. And that that really stood out to me because despite, you know, heavily criticizing liberal democracy, he didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it also struck me that, okay, this this question isn't as abstract as, as I just phrased it, I think. It, it's very concrete. The authoritarians are rolling back the protections that are offered to minorities in the working class, you know. I mean, in my, in my talk, I mentioned that Trump threatened basically every institution and value of democracy. He threatens the rule of law, as we just saw with the impeachment trial. He threatens the freedom of the press. Actually, I just read an article today where the Committee for the Protection of Journalists, which typically tries to protect journalists in foreign countries, you know, authoritarian countries and uh, countries which are, are currently war-torn, they just issued a, a safety kit for the 2020 election in the U.S. Um, he, you know, he he's also threatened the legitimacy of fair and free elections. He's you know, absolutely destroyed the separation of powers and the oversight function of Congress. Uh, political pluralism is really under threat here. I could go on and on. So these, these are really concrete uh, you know, assaults on the protections that democracy offers us that a lot of leftists are either looking the other way on or more often, especially now that it's so obvious that Trump is just a, a disaster to, to any semblance of freedom in this country, that they, they still downplay it. They still downplay downplay the threat of, of Trumpism. Why do you think that is? Why have so many people tried to downplay all these dangerous aspects of Trumpism? Well, first, I, I want to kind of clarify what I mean by this. It, I mean, it's not just downplaying, it's also normalizing it. You know, it's it's very common for people to say, for people on the left to say, oh, you know, well, Obama also separated children from their families without getting into the actual details of what the no tolerance policy was, which which made that the default case rather than, you know, an exception where uh, civil deportation hearings were completely eliminated under Trump, whereas before they at least happened under Obama. Uh, you know, there, there's plenty of examples of this, you know, how much of a warmonger Hillary would have been, you know. So the idea that there's some sort of uh, spectrum, uh, you know, that the Trumpism is basically the same as what came before, as what the, you know, the, the neoliberal status quo or whatever is, really, really shocked me. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why people are normalizing the indefensible. However, I think it has to do with this whole broken record crap about neoliberalism, that they they already have certain commitments in place that they are unwilling to give up so that, you know, Trump is a threat to neoliberalism and that therefore, you know, Trump can, we can make common cause with Trump because he threatens the neoliberal order rather than threatening, you know, life on earth or the freedom of this country, the freedom of the people in this country. I, I actually think that uh, it's not at all obvious that Trump uh, threatens neoliberalism. Uh, I mean, you know, in his presidential campaign, he said uh, he would protect Medicare, he would protect Social Security, he says lots of things. But we know, you know, we know he's a liar. If you look at his actual record, um, it's one of deregulation. Uh, it's one of, you know, massive uh, tax givebacks to corporations and, and to the wealthy. Um, and, you know, you get people such as 
uh, Henry Giraud, the education theorist who talks about, you know, Trumpism as neoliberal fascism. And I mean, I think it's just he's he's trying to split a difference or something. I, I don't think the, 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 that category works very well. But, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure that, 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 that Trump threatens neoliberalism and therefore these uh, the, the, therefore the soft on Trump left is soft on him because he's a threat to neoliberalism. I think it's more uh, you were saying that, you know, they can make common cause or, or they think that they can use Trump uh, for their projects. Um, it, it seems to me that the, the, the issue is more that if the focus is put on defeating Trump and Trumpism, the centrality of their struggle against neoliberalism kind of has to take a back seat. And, and I think that that, that, that might be what uh, threatens people. I, I, I used to hear a lot, but this is a distraction. What we have to deal with is, you know, neoliberalism and the billionaires and the this and the that and the other thing. And, you know, don't get distracted by <laughs> by Donald Trump. Uh, my reaction to that was always the kinds of things that you folks are talking about in this moment. These things seem to me to be a distraction from the urgent crisis that we face because of Trumpism. And, you know, that's that's what we have to put front and center. Uh, I don't know. How do you how do you feel about that? Adam? When you put it that way, I'm really struck by the contradiction that's that's underlying that argument. I'm, I have Chris Catrone's piece, Why Not Trump, from September of 2016 right in front of me. And he says that everything Trump calls for exists already. Yet the other side of that argument is that Trump is supposed to shake things up. And I don't it, I agree with you that on the one hand, he's supposed to threaten the neoliberal order. But on the other hand, you know, he's just an extension of it. And I yeah, I think I think that that's really a contradiction that's that's underlying it. And, you know, I think that instead of acknowledging that contradiction, it allows them to do double duty. On the one hand, everything Trump calls for exists already. So, you know, he's just as bad as the liberals. He's just, you know, Macron is just as bad as Le Pen. Uh, you know, Hillary is just as bad as Trump. So they can downplay the threat that authoritarianism plays while at the same time um, saying that even though there is that false equivalency there, they can also say with the other side of that argument that, you know, it, it, it'll shake things up. And so that allows them to conclude on the one hand that, you know, neoliberal centrism is no different from authoritarianism, but at the same time, anti-Trumpism is the problem and obstacle and not Trump. You know, he's not he's not all that extreme and that this is a distraction from the socialist project because, you know, we're just picking from one billionaire or another. Yeah, this idea that he he's not so extreme. I mean, now after three years of him in power, it's it's very hard to make that argument. It has become increasingly hard to make that argument uh, about him not being so extreme. But I remember before the election, oh, this is campaign talk and blah, blah, blah. We don't know. There's no track record and there's no reason to believe that, like, you know, this guy would be falling if he became president. Now we, we know this guy is, is falling all around us. Why do you think that threat that Trump represents and Trumpism represents was just not not recognized sufficiently uh, at first, or maybe it just wasn't taken seriously enough at first. Frankly, I think it's because it wasn't a threat to them, to their own person. You know, the people who are saying this are not, you know, the Hispanics who he immediately tried to turn the entire country against, or the Muslims who he who he banned from the country. Or uh, one of the most shocking examples of this was when one of his lackeys, Katrina Pearson, went on television and said that the Constitution, only, the rights afforded by the Constitution only apply to U.S. citizens. You know, I, I think part of it comes from a position of privilege where they aren't the ones who are under attack yet by Trump, so that they aren't taking the threat seriously. On the other hand, I think there's a bit of navel-gazing here too, where, again, they're not taking him as a threat because they see that they can make common cause with him. They see that he's going to, maybe maybe he's not going to attack neoliberalism, but he's going to destabilize it and shake things up such that, you know, socialism could be around afterwards to pick up the pieces when he either utterly annihilates the Democrats or just destroys the fabric of this country. Uh, so I think there's a bit of annihilationism in there too. Yeah, and I think there are some people on the left that are just not used to and not willing to find common cause with liberals or centrists. And frankly, some of the people making the most noise against Trump in this country are people from the political center or you know liberals who are concerned about preserving the rule of law and protecting the rights of uh, you know, disenfranchised and, and, and minorities and, and uh, you know, protecting democracy. And leftists, some people on the left are not used to fighting common cause with those sorts of concerns. They just know how to critique the ideology of liberalism or the ideology of the political center. 
Um, you know, they went and got fancy degrees in philosophy so they could unmask the fetishism of capital. Um, but there's really no need for Lacan or the Frankfurt School to stand up to Trumpism because Trumpism is kind of just so obviously bad and dangerous on its face. There's no mask involved, you know, so there's no role for the Chris Catrones and the Slavoj Zizeks. They have nothing to offer this political moment. Um, and so I think they just want to sort of pre pretend that it's a different political moment and there's still this need for um, their sort of smarty pants deconstructionism. Um, and, and, and I also think that some of these people just, they consider themselves too hip and cool to be caught dead at something like the Women's March or watching Rachel Maddow. You know, they, it's, they're like the kids that are too cool to sit at certain tables in the high school cafeteria, no matter what. Um, and then there's also the, the, what we've already sort of hinted at in this conversation, the, the sort of narrow economistic left populists who... Um, all they're really concerned about is taking over the Democratic Party and advancing this social, this social democratic agenda. And they think this is their moment. Um, and they don't, they sort of, uh, they just view this Trumpism as a distraction from what they think is the real political moment. And that's the taking over of the Democratic Party with this sort of social democratic politics. And there's a real danger that we're just going to have a repeat of the debacle that the Labour Party just suffered in the UK, where they also wanted to treat Brexit and Boris Johnson as a distraction to um, you know their political uh, agenda, and they campaigned just you know on national health care service, and they got they got a serious beatdown because this is that was not actually what the political moment was about. The political moment was about the rise of. Uh, authoritarianism and reactionary politics and the on the global stage yeah i think you're right that this a victory against trump in their view would not be a victory for this sector of the left it, it wouldn't be a way in which they seize mass support or political power it would simply be a defeat of trump creating a, a vacuum handing power over to the democrats something of that effect you know, I think one example of this would be the sort of absurd level of reaction and vitriol against Rachel Maddow that one found in certain parts of the left in recent years that I think didn't have a real rational basis. It was just because her star was rising and she was getting uh, a lot of uh, attention because of her journalistic um, investigations of Trump and the Trump Organization and her following of the Mueller investigation, all of which I think were important things for, to, for reporters to be reporting on. But but, you know, she's not a, a radical. She's not a leftist. She's not writing for Jacobin. She's not a, a Democracy Now! reporter. Um, and so the left was, just, some people on the left were just, you know, really upset that the the political attention was being diverted away from their agendas. Um, and it wasn't, you know, she's not out there talking about uh, single-payer health care or, you know, inequality. She's reporting on, like, the crimes of the Trumpism and the dangers of authoritarianism and didn't fit into the narrative that the left populists want to paint of what they think the political issues are of our time. Um, and but but this reaction against her popularity turned into this sort of absurdist post-truth denialism when you have leftists, you know, trying to say that there that there was nothing wrong with, you know, there is no Russia gate and and that there is no story here about uh, Trump's criminality and authoritarianism. Yeah, this discussion uh, caused me to go back on the internet and find this ridiculous column I read by Ted Rawl, who's a very well-known um, cartoonist, you know, uh, does political cartoons. And he's your kind of like dyed-in-the-wall anti-neoliberal leftist. And he, 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 he uh, November 7, last year, he wrote a column called For Progressives, Capturing the Democratic Party is More Important Than Beating Donald Trump. And he begins the following way. He says, nothing Thing leading Democrats say matters more than beating Donald Trump. 2020, they argue, is the most important election of our lifetimes. Okay, they always say that. Continues. It's not true. If you're a progressive voter taking back control of the Democratic Party from the DLC, Democratic Leadership Council, Clinton, Biden, centrist cabal is more important than defeating the incumbent. Uh, and he, go, he goes on. But I mean, basically, yeah, let's do everything we can, you know, to destroy the Democratic Party in order to, you know, risk destroying the Democratic Party in order to 
to get Bernie Sanders in, whatever it is, even at the risk of, you know, having four, four more years of Donald Trump. Okay? I mean, that, that shows you the, the priorities very clearly, it seems to me. You know, a lot of times people hint around the edges at this. This guy just comes out and says it. Okay, so that, that raises f for me a question, okay? Um, this kind of response to Trumpism from some sections of what calls itself the left, you know, just sitting idly by or egging Trump on or defending him, minimizing, uh, saying it's a distraction. I mean, that is harmful. It's, uh, it's harmful to, to immigrants. It's harmful to refugees, to, to, to black people, uh, to, to, to other people of color, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, Adam, you've been arguing that it's not just harmful to like the rest of us, it's also harmful to that so-called left itself. You say it's suicidal. Why? What's your argument as to why, you know, they're actually hurting themselves? You know, when I when I said that it was suicidal, I, I meant that in a couple of ways. On the one hand, I think it's playing with fire to look the other way on and even encourage the rise of the far right. What happens when the far right is on the rise? Democratic institutions, norms, and protections are rolled back. Protections against the police, protections against the state, free elections, uh, free a free press. All of those things are crucial to the socialist project being able to uh, operate at a, at a fuller capacity. Without a free press spreading ideas and having open discussions about what revolutionary politics should be becomes very difficult. Without free elections, you know, that only, look at what happened in Hungary. They were able to rewrite the constitution in 2010. And now, sure, they have elections, but they're the furthest thing from fair or free. They're a complete farce. Minority rights, civil liberties, you know, people are, people are actually under attack when those are rolled back. So on the one hand, I think it's very dangerous, uh, not just politically, but, you know, concretely with, with the protections that democracy allows leftists so that to some extent the revolution can can be agitated for out in the open, that there are protections against arbitrary exercises of power by the police and by the state. When I said that was suicidal, what I meant was that, you know, on the one hand, it threatens uh, the, uh, to remove a lot of the protections that uh, offer leftists some amount of ability to agitate for the revolution out in the open. The, the freedom of the press, uh, minority rights and civil liberties, uh, pro protections against the arbitrary exercise of power. Um, so on the one hand, it, it threatens the political liberties that allow leftists to function. On the other hand, it also threatens leftist values to elect and agitate for the enemies of freedom. It absolutely undermines you know, the, the values of people who are fighting for human liberation to elect people who are completely against human freedom. And finally, I use the word suicidal because in some cases, electing the far right very well is suicidal for leftists. People get jailed, people are imprisoned arbitrarily, um, you know, people have their, their newspapers seized, uh, their, their, their ideas censored, uh, and in some cases they're executed. So it, it, it's suicidal in several senses, and I think it says a lot about people's values who call themselves leftists, that they could even entertain this idea. Adam, I don't know if you can answer this, but do you think that there's a difference uh, between uh, different age brackets in regard to the prevalence of this sort of soft on Trump leftism? Is this something that's more prevalent amongst the younger generation? I'm not sure. I think that with older people, you know, they've they've seen what happens under Nixon, Reagan, McCarthyism, etc. in this country. So I think older folks already have kind of seen seen this thing before, and and so they're they're less likely to not take it seriously. I think per perhaps that's part of it. Uh, with a lot of young people too, especially uh, in my generation, you know, when we're coming of age, this was in the wake of the Great Recession. So I think there's also there's a lot of hopelessness. There's uh, uh, I, I would even say most people in my generation feel like uh, we've we've been lied to. That promises have not been kept. That the quality of life that we have is and, and the opportunities that we have are worse than those of our parents. You know, crippling debt, uh, coming out of uh, college, and you know finding a terrible job market or at least you know one that is not is not offering great opportunities. I can't tell you how many people I know in my generation who are working in Uber Eats or something. You know, so I think I think there's a sense of betrayal and and a, a bit of hope. 
hopelessness there so that, you know, I think younger people are, are perhaps willing to turn to uh, left and right authoritarianism, uh, either because, you know, it, they, they feel like there's there's nothing worth, worth salvaging and they can burn it all down and start over um, because they're angry or, or simply because, you know, they've kind of checked out. Um, and that's that's just with sectors on the left. I think there's also a real appeal by these these right, far right demagogues to young people that there, there really is, you know, it's not a huge sector of, of young people who are flocking towards Trump. His numbers with young people aren't that great. However, the ones who are flocking to Trump, who are my age, are absolutely dedicated. What worries me is that the young people who are flocking to Trump are the most energetic in many cases about him. They're the ones who are running the white supremacist blogs, um, podcasts. Uh, they're the ones who are propagandizing, it, both in word and in deed. They're the ones who have pioneered live streaming terrorism. They're the ones who have pioneered using the internet to spread hateful ideologies in a way that made Stormfront obsolete almost immediately when they came out. That's that's what's really frightening to too. So I think I think there are a lot of factors which are contributing to young people having a sense of hopelessness or anger or even in many cases just outright embracing fascism or in many cases just outright embracing the far right. Well, Adam, you are a young person relatively and you have not fallen into the traps of soft on Trump leftism or the sort of narrow economism of the Jacobin left populist Sandinista crowd. So what has allowed you to be immune to those things? You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't really deeply involved in leftist circles until Trump began to show his ugly face. Um, and I, I think that's certainly part of it. You know, when I became politically politically active in leftist circles uh, was coincided with the rise of Donald Trump. And so I think it was a little from the start, it was a little more focused on anti-authoritarianism rather than this uh, this more traditional social democratic platform of trying to seize political power. So I think that's part of it. Uh, honestly, I, I can't tell you because this is this is just so obviously wrong. And you know, it's it's so obviously wrong that even liberals get it. And that's the, it just shocks me that so much of the left doesn't. I, I understand that they might be tepid about making common cause with liberals, but not when it's the far right, man. It, it just astounds me that this isn't obvious to people that, you know, attacks on every sort of minority and civil liberty you can name, attacks on every democratic institution and, you know, cultural value and norm attacks on the truth these things are just so obviously wrong that you know I, I don't know I, I don't think that the question is why did I buck the trend the question is why haven't these other people done that why is that the trend I think that's a very good way of putting it but I don't know the answer right um, you seem to be an anomaly whereas you should be the norm and it's like why is this not the norm why are you an anomaly here <laughs> well maybe we'll have some some people with great insights and they will write into our podcast and give us some good answers in the comment section. I mean, th this is, this is an issue for the whole world because this is, th th this goes exactly to Vladimir Putin's game plan. You know, Vladimir Putin's game plan is okay. You know, I'm a strong man dictator, but you know, th th the promises of democracy are hollow. They've always been hollow. And what I'm going to do is show the world that nobody's really different, that uh, you want to uh, get along in life. You keep your head down. You stay clean. You don't buck people in power. You know, you get somebody who cares about the people and you support them wildly uh, and they'll make sure that you're not executed or something. Uh, and that's all you can really hope for. Uh, that's what he's trying to do, make that message come across around the world, you know, by messing by messing up countries like the, like the United States. I mean, he's done a tremendous job of showing how hollow the, the democratic core institutions are in this country. I mean, right now, uh, what is it, tomorrow, uh, the, the Senate's going to quit Trump, you know, in the, in the impeachment trial. And th there's probably not going to be any Republican votes to remove him at all. And it basically says, okay, he's above the the law. He can get away with anything. Uh, and his lawyer, Dershowitz, supposedly a Democrat, you know, came out with that argument that basically if, if he believes that his election is in the common interest, you know, the, the interest of the people, it's in the national interest, then it doesn't matter what he does. You know, he can he can extort other countries to, 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 to manufacture evidence on his political opponents because that's in the national interest. I mean, the state is, is, is me, you know. That's the authoritarian position. And 
And if Putin has done nothing else, he's made it clear that this is the actual thinking uh, that is now guiding the Republican Party, not only Donald Trump, but, but him, him as well. So w- when you, you get this lack of concern, disillusionment with liberal democracy from large sections of the population, it's very concerning because that, that gives the things that Putin are doing, that Trump is doing, it, it gives them, you know, a mass power, a base, uh, some there's some material reality underpinning this. And, you know, I can understand why that's coming from the far right. What I don't understand at all are the supposedly leftist manifestations of, of the same thing. How, you know, I, I don't, I, I really find it very hard to understand why some people think that, like, Medicare for all is something to fight for, but saving, you know, liberal democracy is not. I mean, it's not what Bernie Sanders thinks. You know, he doesn't know kind of how to combine the two things into something coherent. For him, it's on the one hand and on the other hand. But there are a lot of people, you know, sort of grouped around his campaign and sympathetic to it who really seem to think that, like, you know, we, we can jettison liberal democracy and that's completely fine as long as, you know, we got the uh, Medicare for all, the, uh, you know, no college debt, the free college tuitions and, and stuff like that. I find it very hard to understand that. But I don't know. Maybe you have some insight into that. I mean, I suppose Medicare for all would be nice under authoritarianism. We might need it. (laughs) You know, for me, the question is really, okay. so, you know, the the premise I I think that I, I do buy is that part of the rise of far-right sentiment and authoritarianism and and the the subsequent democratic backslide is caused by you know this this cynicism with the the failures or the the contradictions of democracy you know the contradiction of these egalitarian principles these views that all men are created equal and then on the same page of that document it says that black people are worth three-fifths of a person these these contradictions are, are are really in the dna i think of a lot of the these liberal democracies of these republics and constitutional monarchies across the globe. So the question for me is, okay, so if if this cynicism indeed leads to uh, you know people turning towards turning away from democracy and towards authoritarianism, um, uh, that I can buy. The the thing that you know so many sectors of the left do with that though is they they tweak that. They say that the cynicism is caused not by capitalism, not by the contradictions of capitalism, not by the contradictions of liberal democracy, but by neoliberalism. Therefore, you know, under the current order, you know, we've therefore neoliberalism and democracy and capitalism are all equated and actually really reduced to neoliberalism. And that therefore fighting for democracy, which is equated to neoliberalism, is the same as or or really not preferable to fighting against authoritarianism. Because if neoliberalism causes authoritarianism, why would you fight to defend democracy? Because democracy is neoliberalism. This epiphenomenal view of the rise of the far right. I think is extremely dangerous. And I really, I was shocked by how clearly this was uh, phrased in the Zizek piece I mentioned earlier on don't believe the liberals. There's no real choice between Le Pen and Macron, you know. And at least in the US, it's not the case that economic dissatisfaction with neoliberalism led to the rise of Donald Trump. I, I, I get that logic, but I mean, I, I can understand why people who you know, a priori are concerned with only fighting neoliberalism and not fighting capitalism, I can understand why why they would then fall into the trap of you know basically supporting the far right. But even then, you know, when I went into the ballot box, when I went into the voting booth in November of 2016, I took one look at Trump on the ballot box next to next to Pence, and it made me sick. You know, there's there's a picture from the French election that really has always stood out to me, and it's two campaign posters next to each other, one for Macron and one for Le Pen, and somebody had taken spray paint and spray painted a dollar sign over Macron's face and a swastika over Le Pen's face. When the choice is that stark, when the choice is that clear, door number one, the dollar sign, or door number two, the swastika, I still don't see how people can fail to see the real difference between the two. I I understand that the logic of their argument goes that neoliberal 
populism causes you know the far right or the rise of the far right but even even then that doesn't mean vote for the far right you know you could very well just vote for neoliberalism and then try to agitate further left so i still don't understand the choice to uh, minimize or actively defend the far right because you know if there's no difference between the two choices why prefer the second one so i that's that's the thing i don't get even if you follow the the logic of this epiphenomenal argument that you know that that the rise of the far right is a symptom of neoliberalism which has caused discontent with democracy why does that mean that you minimize authoritarianism why does that mean that you know actually Zizek said you know in in the French election Zizek said don't vote because there's no real choice but in the American election he was like oh yeah I like Trump yeah and you know Chris Cutrone encouraged people to vote for Trump and voted for Trump himself and bragged about it um so you know it's not just we're not just talking about hypotheticals here we're talking about actual people that call themselves marxists and leftists and socialists and they went out and voted for trump or encouraged people to vote for trump as a as a way to say fuck you to hillary clinton because they they didn't they just you know they they saw her as somehow the embodiment of all evil I mean, the the argument that there was no, no choice between the National Front and, and a centrist like Macron, okay, first of all, to say that neoliberalism, you know, leads to the far right, which in a sense it does, I, I find it hard to understand how one moves from that to the idea that there's no choice between them. You know, just as you say, at the moment that, that there's an election, there's the one versus the other, and you can say this led to that, but that doesn't mean that they're identical. Um, in fact, it means that they're not identical. If there's this and that, it means that they're not identical. But what struck me when I recently reread this piece in the Independent, um, May 3rd of 2017, um, by Zizek, um, he ends it by saying, well, he says, what vision has the left to offer that would be strong enough to mobilize people? And he says, we should never forget that the ultimate cause of the act that we are caught into, the vicious cycle of Le Pen and Macron, is the disappearance of a, the viable left alternative. So the ultimate cause of all of this is the disappearance of the viable leftist alternative. So if you're going to say that neoliberalism leads to the ascendancy of the far right, you have to say, along with uh, Zizek, and he says it, he admits it right at the end, the, 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 the ultimate cause here that leads to neoliberalism, which leads to the ascendancy of the far right, is the disappearance of the viable leftist alternative. So if you want to say, ah, you know, the real underlying cause here, you, you can't just implicate the neoliberals, you have to implicate the left for not being able to put forward a viable alternative. And then if you want to take the step and say the one thing leads to the other, so there's no difference, you're not only saying there's no difference, there's no choice between neoliberalism and the far right, now you've got no difference between the left and the far right. Yeah, it, it, it's helpful that you point out that, that part at the end, because it's not just that neoliberalism causes the far right or the ascendancy of the far right, it's that the lack of a viable left has created space for neoliberalism, which leads to cynicism with democracy and the rise of the far right. So what this is, is the lack of a left ultimately means that you should vote for the far right. Well, they don't, they don't come out and say it, but that's that's the, the logical implication of it. I mean, part of it, I think, for people like Zizek and, and Coutron is that they don't really have positions. They just exist as sort of entertainment figures. They say provocative things that made people say, oh, well, I hadn't thought about that. Or, well, that's even more radical than I thought. Um, they kind of, they want to find like these clever ways to, you know, uh, deconstruct things and expose things and make, pe make people see like behind the veil of ideology and, you know, expose the fetish and things like that. So they, they don't really have to take responsibility for things they say. It's just sort of like this evocative deconstructionist art or something um and the people like them because it makes them feel smart it's like the little coy one-liners you can say at, at, a, at a bar conversation with your other grad student friends and sound like you're you're even more free thinking or something you know so Catron can say a bunch of sort of uh, impressionistic things about how the Democrats are just as bad on this or this issue as if it's like brilliantly piercing like the veneer of liberalism and all the ideology of liberalism. But it's really, I just, it doesn't come across as impressive or 
intelligent anymore. It just comes across as as asinine and pathetic, like some kind of old clown trying to repeat some routine that doesn't work anymore in like a modern era. There's, there's just no possible way you can conceivably equate neo-fascism with sort of the centrist neoliberals. There's just no no, no conceivable way that intelligent people who haven't already like uh, uh, imbibed the Kool-Aid uh, of some like leftist cult organization like the Platypus Society, there's no way normal people uh, who, who, who can see reality with their own eyes clearly are going to can equate these two things only like um crazy people on the left who have something to prove are going to make these kind of arguments hey in just a moment we're going to continue this conversation but first we're going to take a moment to tell you a little bit about marxist humanist initiative the organization which sponsors our podcast hello this is Anja clard organizational secretary of marxist humanist initiative Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So I'm, I'm pretty struck by something that Engels said to the International Working Men's Association in 1871. Um, this was a, a talk he gave on September 21st. And he said, right, right at the very end of it, this is the last paragraph, quote, the political freedoms, the right of assembly and association, and the freedom of the press, those are our weapons. Are we to sit back and abstain while somebody tries to rob us of them? It is said that a political act on our part implies that we accept the existing state of affairs. On the contrary, so long as this state of affairs offers us the means of protesting against it, our use of these means does not signify that we recognize the prevailing order. That seems a lot more clear-headed than saying, "Oh, you know, you know, Hillary is is just as bad as Trump, and you know, therefore, it's okay that one of Trump's main agendas is to roll back our protections even more than some of the Democrats have been." So, you know, just to just to get a cheap shot at the libs, you know, we're going to give up our political freedoms. Right. I mean, I, I really hope that uh, Brendan is right and no normal people will fall for this kind of like irony, postmodern relativism or whatever you want to call it anymore. I mean, that this is the way that Trump got himself elected in 2016. And it's clearly the game plan that he's using in the trying to smear Joe Biden, the creating of a false equivalence. And if you just keep repeating, you know, her emails, you know, because her emails, but her emails and, you know, Hunter Biden. And, and you can kind of neutralize the, the, the corruption issue. So, you know, Trump is a horrible, corrupt monster, but the other side is just as corrupt. So, you know, let's vote about what we really care about. Given that they're both corrupt, who's the white nationalist? You know, who's more of the misogynist? Who's going to give me my tax cuts and keep the fetuses alive? Right. That's the that that's the game plan. And I mean, I hope that people don't fall for it. But, you know, you can't really live on hope. I, 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 I think that the 
that Trump knows how to play to people's fears and he knows how to neutralize the opposition. And a lot of people hate, you know, politicians and, and you know, the, all the old story, oh, they're all corrupt. And oh, you know, this is Trump just makes it more on the surface, you know, whereas the other people hide it. You know, I, I'm, I'm very worried that, that, that people are still going to fall for them. I mean, what about is, is basically just totally illogical, but people fall for it. Yeah, and I think the other big question, open question, is whether or not we're going to see a recurrence of the Bernie or bust mentality that contributed to Trump's victory in 2016, and whether the Sandernista crowd will have learned anything from that debacle, or we're just doomed to repeat the same mistake again. I actually, I, I mean, I think that's the other the other side of it. It's not just you know, can can Trump cause enough confusion, but also you know, we're already seeing the Bernie or bust crowd repeating itself. You know, when he was pitted against Warren, you know, I don't think that I think actually a lot of, of Bernie supporters would never go with with Warren after that. The the Des Moines Register poll, I've seen a lot of conspiracism around that. You know, Bernie was supposed to be way up in the polls, and you know, there that was why it was suppressed, and you know, it was another CNN hit job, just like the Warren thing. I think we're already seeing the Bernie or Bus narrative being written and probably even even more sharply than last time. I think, you know, I, I, I really can't see a significant portion of Bernie people, uh, you know, going with another candidate if they feel that the nomination's been stolen from them. I saw a poll today where it was Yang supporters, uh, I believe it was 40% total um, that would either not vote for any other candidate or it would depend on the candidate if it weren't Yang. Uh, Bernie's numbers were the second highest, but not quite that high. Uh, um, you know, I, I think that the Bernie or Bus narrative is already being written right in front of our eyes. And this abstentionism, you know, Bernie or bust, vote third party, it, it's going to be even worse this time, I think. Yeah, we're in a very dangerous situation because on one hand, we have this phenomenon where there's such a religious cult of personality around Sanders in some circles that a lot of those people might vote a third party or not vote or vote for Trump or something again if Sanders doesn't get the nomination. But on the other hand, if Sanders gets the nomination, there are going to be a lot of people who consider Trump the lesser of two evils because they perceive Sanders to be some sort of dangerous uh, socialist candidate, no, no matter how inappropriate that label is. And I really don't think a lot of those Jacobin, Sandernista, Social Democrat folks really fully understand how dangerous a game it is they're playing. Well, you know, first of all, when you say the Sandernistas, I mean, Sanders himself has been pretty clear that, and, you know, I heard Andrew Yang when they, uh, they the same statistic about uh, only half of his voters would vote for a Democratic candidate and the other half would not vote if he, he doesn't become the nominee. Uh, he says, no, you know, when the main thing is to defeat Donald Trump. That's what he said. But the, the, the problem is the people that are supporting the candidate. And with, with Sanders, it's the same thing. Sanders is very clear. And I think he'll, you know, if he doesn't and get the nomination. I think he'll do a lot to go around speaking and telling people to defeat Trump. The, the, the problem is is really the, the supporters of the candidate. They've got their own agenda. You know, certainly the people at Jacobin and, and, and the DSA have their own agenda, which is not the same as, as that of the, the, the candidate that they're back. I just read you what, what Ted Raw had to say. There are these people who think that the main struggle is against the centrist in the Democratic Party, uh, etc. And, 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 you know, the struggle against the far right and and, and, and white supremacy and, and virulent misogyny and, and uh, putting immigrants in cages and separating their families, that's just a distraction. There are people who think this. So this goes back to the central question of Adam's work, you know, where he raises this issue of socialist values. That I mean, I'm just wondering whether we're trying to deal with people who don't have empirical disagreements with us, such that we can discuss the facts and you know, maybe they could persuade us about some facts and we can persuade them. But these are people whose values are just unlike, if not antithetical to ours. And there's just nothing to say that they represent, you know, a different politics because they've got entirely different goals and, and aspirations. Uh, I mean, I've come, you know, to this point where that that's what's on my mind as to whether that's the issue. You know, it's like you can't really talk to people who you don't have anything in common with. I, I, I would like to hear from both of you what you think about that. 
One possible alternative that comes to my mind is that, it, again, it all boils down to left firstism. It boils down to this strategy of, you know, using freedom struggles as a vehicle to, to seize power for oneself and one's program. So, given that, perhaps that's what's motivating um, the the normalization of and tendency toward the normalization of the far right and the tendency towards even minimizing it or supporting or outright supporting it, because the alternative more often than not is a centrist. So, you know, because there these this sector of the left is motivated by the the desire to seize political power, uh, you know, of course they're not going to vote for the centrist no matter what. It, it's possible that that's it. And if if that's the case and perhaps that still is a difference of values, but it's also a tactical difference. It, perhaps there are assumptions underlying that strategy which can be, uh, you know, critiqued and and disproven. For example, the idea that you can keep your hands clean in a bourgeois election or elect your way to the ascendancy of a socialist platform, or that you could even politic your way out of bourgeois democracy. I also think that there might be a fair amount of people that aren't even aware that there's some sort of alternative ideologically to sort of social democratic Jacobin, Sandinista, left populist, sort of narrow economism that we've been critiquing. Or at least maybe they might be aware that there are some sort of other groups and ideologies out there, but they don't, those ideas don't seem to have a viable purchase on events. They don't seem to be ways you can immediately get your hands dirty. I mean, people are attracted to things that are, are winning, things that are in their ascendancy, things that are uh, cachet. So I can see how a young person could get swept up into the romanticism of the Sandinista movement. Um, if you want to call it a movement, I shouldn't probably call it that. Um, uh, and you know, I think they they also they often don't run against don't run into things that make them question this orientation. At least things that are alternatives from the left, so things that are more to the left of the social democratic standpoint, are not things they run into that often. Um, honestly, I don't think it takes much to question this position, especially as like Jacobin has become more and more of like a parody of itself. It reads like some sort of propaganda magazine with its ridiculous accolades of Sanders. I mean, declaring the day after his heart attack that he's perfectly fine and in perfectly good health. I mean, it just sound, it felt like a some sort of Soviet propaganda uh, newspaper. Or they're like ridiculous diatribes against Elizabeth Warren as if she is some sort of distinctive thing from Sanders. I mean, to me, they're both left economic populists, just that she calls herself a capitalist and he calls himself a socialist, but it's just sort of this difference in labeling. There's no substance to it, but at Jacobin, it means everything in this very religious, uh, uncritical way. Um, so I, I do think it is, you know, possible to critique and maybe persuade people that this is an absurdist position to take if they see that there's some other alternative on the left. You know, people they don't want to. Uh, uh, opt for the center and they don't want to uh, opt for the right uh, on, on the, then in addition to that though there is this line right that um, this left populism is the only way to defeat Trump you know that they're only the people are only going to be motivated to vote for a candidate uh, again and, and oppose Trump if this democratic candidate is representing something that's in their material interest but then again I think you know people who take that line really need to be challenged on the viability of this very narrow economistic perception of people's interests and challenged to um, challenge to question a concept of socialism that um, that is so narrowly focused on the redistributionist uh, economic policies at the expense of the fight against authoritarianism and downplaying the dangers of uh, racism and white nationalism and Trumpism and, and et cetera. Adam, in your paper, you argue that it's important for socialists to uh, fight to transcend liberal democracy, but you also argue that it's important to defend liberal democracy at the same time. Can you explain why that's not a contradiction to uh, try to fight to transcend something and to fight to defend it? 
Um, and also, maybe you should even define what you mean by liberal democracy as opposed to just democracy in general. So I, d I don't think that it's a coincidence that socialism, uh, you know, as as a political ideology and, and as a movement emerged from the, the bourgeois struggle for democracy and also from sectors of radical republicanism. Um, and I believe that at a certain point in advancing the political question that you, you therefore imply the social question. Uh, and there's three words I used in my talk that I really want to focus on. Defend, extend, and transcend. I believe that we need to defend the protections of democracy and in doing so extend them in order to transcend them, to move beyond the boundaries of liberal democracy. And again, that quote from Lenin in 1905 really, really, I think, summarizes all of this. Quote, we can vastly extend these boundaries, and within these boundaries, we can and must fight for the interests of the proletariat, for its immediate needs, and for the conditions that will make it possible to prepare its forces for the future complete victory. So it's not just important to defend liberal democracy against authoritarianism because authoritarianism is terrible and oppressive. Um, in doing so, we can extend those protections. You know, the, the, the fight to protect Obamacare has advanced the question of health care in this country. And, and you know, the the fight to abolish slavery advanced the question of the status of black people in this country because again it, it absolutely advances the status of the the question of black people in this country when they go from being slaves to you know potentially owning land and running for office um, and finally the idea that we can transcend democracy that we can defend and finally the idea that we can transcend democracy in the, the struggle against authoritarianism um, I think is the most important part here it, it means that there is a way in which we can struggle for democracy against authoritarianism that does not stop at the boundaries of liberal democracy that can actually you know create uh, some sort of momentum in enact a process that could lead to a better society beyond liberal democracy and capitalism and then finally, uh, just I have an anecdote about fair and free elections over in East Europe. This was, uh, I forget when the election was, this was around 2011 or 2012, and it was uh, when Putin was running for re-election. Uh, there was an independent watchdog group that set up webcams in the polling places. And so I, I was watching one for about a half hour, and the scene really stuck in my mind where I saw a little old Russian lady patiently waiting in line to cast her one single vote. And meanwhile, right in front of her in line was the guy who was running the polling booth, was the guy who was running the polling station, stuffing the ballot for Putin, who won, I think, something like 95% of the vote in that district. Um, so that's what a fair and free election is under illiberal democracy. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's all the time we have on today's episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to see more episodes, to uh, leave a comment, to uh, leave a donation. And if you appreciate the podcast, please do do all those things, seemingly superficial things that help a podcast out. Uh, like us on your podcast app or platform. Share us with your friends on social media or in person. And please do write in. We hope to hear from you.